0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Story Conversations. Uh, I'm here, I'm Simon, and I'm here with...
1: With Susan, um, your partner in...
0: Crime. Yeah, partner yes, in crime. Yes, partner, partner in
1: crime. crime, yeah. Susan, why don't you uh, tell us
0: about who today's uh, episode features?
1: Right. Uh, so our, our episode today features Salb Still, um, who is a really fascinating individual um Trained as an actor, trained as an opera singer, literally makes a living today singing in the choir at St. Patrick's. But we brought him to story conversations because Sal wrote a book called Cool. And Cool is the history of air conditioning in North America. Now, uh, I'm going to let Sal talk more about his origin story and why he's so fascinated with air conditioning it is a remarkably interesting funny and and revelatory book about the storytelling of everyday things so let's get right to it so, Sal,
0: we are thrilled that you could join us today. Um, you're a singer and a member of the cantorial staff at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York and the author of Cool, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything. Our, our listeners and we would just love to know a little bit about your backstory. So I know you've been an actor, an opera singer, a magazine columnist. Um, let, let's start there. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your backstory. Uh,
2: my backstory is everyone's backstory in New York, who is a performer, I came here at one point uh, to make it, which is one of those courses they don't teach you at school, and then did everything. Uh, I was a word processor and a dog walker and a produce wrapper and did many, many things. And one of the stories about the performing arts life is that you wind up being tossed into sort of a ready-made situation, a ready-made family uh, abruptly. And you never know who it is, where it is, how it'll turn out, but it is just, I think that's, that's it's a part of the course. My very first job in New York was at a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta company off Broadway seven performances a week, uh, for which I got $19. (laughs) And that was not a great salary at the time. (laughs) So there was was a period of living on eggs and seeing what else was out there. Uh, And uh, you yourself are a performer, so you understand. You simply bounce around from job to job to job, and do things in the middle, and sooner or later wind up someplace. Uh, I did all of what everyone else does. And then at one point, I got a recommendation because St. Patrick's Cathedral needed a soloist for a concert, and they needed him fast. I went to see the director uh, quaking. I sang six bars of music, and he stopped and said, oh, you'll be fine. (laughs) And all of a sudden I had a job. <laughs> and that is sort of the way it happens. Uh wh- would you say that in your own situation it was much the same? That you cannot plan this.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree completely. I think, you know, most of us in our careers we want to plan a career, but that's just not the way life happens. So
1: Yeah, life is what happens when you're making other plans. I think somebody said <laughs> that. Um so when was that that you joined the, the Cantorial staff at St. Patrick's, which is quite a title.:
2: Eight though. yeah. I was made a member of the, uh, one of the choirmen, as, as they would call it, in 1998. Then I joined, formally joined the Cantorial staff in '03, and have been there ever since. Uh, It's fun, you're on the inside. And what I realized when I was there is that it hooked straight into what I've thought of every other aspect of performing, of watching TV as a four-year-old where I would look at commercials and understand what they were trying to do. Everything in the world is a story and it's a story of selling. Whether you're selling for money or just for acceptance or belief. Uh, that was what propelled me to, after a while, get the position of cathedral music historian. They never had had one before in their history. And then I wrote my first book, Fifth Avenue Famous, which was a story of that music. Because as someone had said, well, this, this reads like a story. Well, of course it's a story. Because any any situation is made up of people, and people have their own biographies. Mm. And all of those biographies have a definite impact on the product, whatever that product is, uh, because there's no such thing as a completely unbiased point of view.
1: <laughs> Very well, true. So music is something that you, I mean, you've been steeped in your whole life, but talk talk us through this fascination with air conditioning and what, after your first book, what, what, what was the genesis of you writing Cool?
2: When I was six years old, my aunt Catherine bought two air conditioners. I, I come from a blue collar working family. So all of the relatives were scandalized because air conditioners were only for rich people. Uh, but what I noticed immediately was that every family gathering then on was at Aunt Kate's in the summertime. And that Aunt Kate's place was comfortable. And the first chance I got, I walked up to one of these machines and put my hand in front of the opening. And even though it was August, there was cool air. And I was astonished. I was amazed. How wonderful. So,
1: yeah, Catherine was cool. In her way, as yes, she No, oh, that's is. terrible. That's
2: terrible. <laughs> and Catherine, thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> also, when you would see ads for air conditioners at the time, they were all being sold with, with in magazines and such with lovely ladies in very fancy gowns. And even as a child, I thought, there's a disconnect here, even though I didn't know what the word disconnect was. And that intrigued me enough that when I became older, I began to try to do some research as in, as to what that meant. The idea of having to sell it. And at the same time, there were my parents tut-tut-tutting about and Catherine and her air conditioners, because again, air conditioners are only for rich people. Well, She had them, and I understood that there was almost a moral objection. I learned since that there is a a, a verse from the Bible that only God is the the source of wind and breeze. And even a, a fan, a mechanical fan, was considered at one time sinful. So, of course, cool, anything that would make cool air is more simple. In the 1850s, there was, in the 1850s, yes, there was a doctor in Florida named John Gorey who invented a machine quite by accident that could produce cool air. It was driven by a steam engine. And not only could it produce cool air, it could make ice. Well, that was, first off, it was going right in the face of the ice interests because natural ice, cut in the winter and stored in ice houses with much sawdust around it and shipped literally around the world, was a huge business in those days. But on top of it, there was uh, an objection to the mere idea that a human being could fly in the face of... Of God's climate, and this man was destroyed in the press and by public opinion, and he died penniless. Wow! Yeah,
1: that was fascinating.
0: I think that the the whole the whole subject is fascinating. I mean, Susan and I have been talking about this idea of telling stories about everyday things because you know these things don't just arrived fully, fully formed they have a history they have a, a legacy that comes with them and yet they're things that we take for granted and we don't really think about them in in that way you know in, in our lives it wasn't even called it wasn't called air conditioning is that right that when it was first invented it was called something else
2: that's right the the very first attempts were called Living Room Refrigeration. How's that for a advertising title? <laughs> it's well, sloppy. Yeah, <laughs> it was right <laughs> off the top. And when Willis Carrier uh, it patented what we would call an air conditioning system in 1902, it was referred to as the apparatus for treating air. Equally bumpy. There had been an engineer who developed a a system to add humidity to the air in cotton mills so that the threads would not snap while they were being spun. That was called air conditioning. Uh, Mr. Carrier stole that title and ran with it. So conditioned air had to do with temperature and then it also had to do with humidity. And it became something that factories were, were, were dying to have, at the same time, he, was, he realized that it could make, uh, make a great impact on human comfort, but people simply did not want to do this. They were very, very resistant. One of the first installations, and it was not something Carrier had uh, put together, this was another engineer, one of the first installations was the New York Stock Exchange, Uh, the trading floor, which was a gigantic space, it was something like a million cubic feet of air, was refrigerated, as they called it. And at the time, which was around 1904, I think, that it opened, it made nationwide headlines. Uh, It was so revolutionary that someone would do this. Uh, Theaters in New York had been, for decades, playing around with systems of fans and ice. And some of the systems were very, very elaborate. And some of them worked and some of them didn't. And they were sort of an ongoing joke. Because uh, as you know, uh, I've been in the Drury Lane and I think the air that is in there now is the air that was in there in 1874.
0: Guess- <laughs> that <was> just just <laughs> as you were saying that. I'm, I I I'm from England. I live in England. Air conditioning is not something that we're particularly fussed about here because we don't necessarily need it. But there are occasions oh, yeah. when it gets very very hot. Funnily enough, when talking about the Theatre Audrey Lane, the summer that I the two summers I worked there, one of them was particularly hot. We had. I think it was ninety six or ninety five. We had a really, really oppressive and long oh. hot summer, and so in that theatre we just melted. I must have lost you know pounds and pounds of weight because there was no, there was no air conditioning in in any of those London theatres. I think a couple of them have have it now. They're very very progressive, but uh, yes. know, not then.
2: I think I think Drury Lane did get it now because when I visited, I I did not melt that night, and it was July. Yeah. So. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, it's amazing to me that there's so much in your book that's factual, and you, as a historian, you obviously understand the the need to do research. Um, but you know, my, many of the the critics or, or the the people who uh, reported about the book speak about how it's so anecdotal, and it, it you know, frankly, it almost reads like a, a, a you know, a pop boiler. I mean, it, it's the idea that air conditioning was sinful or immoral, or um, you know, you talked about that. But you know, moving from reciting facts to literally telling a story that engages us—that's a real art. I mean, talk talk to us a little bit about how you how you wove in these very dramatic ideas into the book.
2: Well, I think part of that is your basic mindset. Uh, Whatever you come, in presentation, it's what you come to the table with. You either have a storytelling instinct or you have a sense of humor, God help you. And if you do, you tend to view everything that way. Uh, I had read one treatise on air conditioning. And one of the facts that I noticed was that in the very beginning of life of movie theaters, Nickelodeons, the air was disgusting because these were basically sealed rooms and small rooms at that, crowded with people. The managers did not know what to do about it. So their first idea was to go up and down the aisles spraying perfume. Maybe that would help the situation. And when I read this, I noticed, A, that it was hysterical, and, B, that the report on the page was simply dead factual. And I thought, this should be funny. And that gave me the impetus when I began to write that it had to have some sort of salt in in the text uh i had done that with fifth avenue famous and there were people who were very offended by it but i well we know how that works so you know uh
0: i guess go on sorry no no please no I, i just say how how do you um how do you cope with that when when I mean I think I think maybe it's about the fact that as Susan said, um, the the story of air conditioning shouldn't necessarily be a pot boiler. You wouldn't think it would be, and yet you're subverting expectations. Did you get any of that kind of criticism or or feedback from from people? Because you said you you said that you've you've had it from for the previous novel. Did you have anything people were saying, well, this is ridiculous. It shouldn't it shouldn't be funny. It shouldn't be <laughs> pot boiler.
2: There was a very little bit of it. With uh, customer reviews on Amazon, in print, the one main criticism came from the person who had written that treatise I mentioned. <laughs> 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 who, who it, I guess frivolous. Uh,
1: yeah, of course. Broadcast again?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Of course,
1: you know when you take on um, something as benign as air conditioning, you know you don't have huge. Lobbying entities defending it but when you take on something like the cathedral um even if you are speaking about the history of music at the cathedral there's bound to be somebody who has an opinion so oh, yes. um, um was that did that did that increase sales of the book <laughs> or or did you uh Did you find Uh, the detractors pushed people away? It increased
2: some sales. Uh, The people who wanted to run away from it ran away from it. Uh, There was one lecture at uh, the Bruno Walter Auditorium of the New York Library where one gentleman got up and asked why I hadn't included much writing on the Anglican end of things and
1: huffed out. Oh Anglican's no, yeah what do you next is it's a humor um <laughs> so um actually the, it's interesting because the 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 cathedral in and of itself is a brand it's an iconic New York landmark i mean it's probably one of one of the global landmarks and you know, there's the idea of selling that brand story. I mean, do you see any connections um, between what, you've, what you learned about storytelling in both your books um, and, and the, the task for, the, for the, the, the brand makers at the cathedral?
2: Well, in a sense, they are doing the right thing they decided to come up with a slogan, America's Parish Church. And it's sort of, okay, if this makes you happy. And they will push that at any hour of the day or night. And this is exactly the same thing as saying, filter, flavor, packed, flip top box. Filter, flavor, flip top box. There, I gave you another good take. or as saying, have a Coke and a smile. You need a, a lot of things need a slogan. Or if you are so well-known that you don't need a slogan, having a slogan makes you look desperate. But that might be endearing. So I don't know, uh, Simon, does uh, CVE do a lot of this kind of push, or do they simply let it lie?
0: I I don't I don't think there is much in the way of branding. I wonder, and I wonder if that's because the Church of England is so linked to the monarchy here, because the Queen is the head of the Church of England as well as the and and I wonder if that's the the brand is innate because it feels like it's so much a part of. History, they don't need a strap line because the monarchy, you know, the Queen sitting on a throne near you, it doesn't really <laughs> necessarily have. That, or, or, I don't know <laughs> which throne, who knows. Uh, so I wonder, I wonder if it's a sli- it's a slightly different ball game. I, I would say. Um, plus, you know, uh, plus Brits and slogans, we're not quite as sloganified here. Although, you know, I think I think it's it has definitely uh, grown over the last fifty years. We've become much more um yeah i i I was i was wondering about the while we're talking about brands and slogans when taking you back sorry back to air conditioning um you know because we we feel like it's 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 part and parcel of our our lives which i guess the church is is part and parcel of, of of the city um you know when 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 air conditioning was new what story did they use to sell it? How how was that brand brought to life in order for people to buy it? Now in America, you know, it's, a, it's ubiquitous. Everybody has, or most people have air conditioning. Um, but when they didn't know what it was, was, a, was it a story that helped sell it in?
2: The very first advertising for air conditioning was almost primarily, almost exclusively industrial. And the idea there was it would help production. It would give you a better product. And in the case of say, chewing gum or chocolate or pasta, you would actually be able to produce it year round, which uh, pre-AC you couldn't do. They would literally have to shut down during the summer months because it was impossible to manufacture these goods at that time because of heat. So you had increased production and you had supposedly better quality. That had nothing to do with the public. Carrier tried to put out some feelers to the general world saying that it was healthier, that you would have a house that you could live in throughout the year rather than three quarters of the year, that it would save babies' lives Uh, There were pictures of incubators that were air-conditioned in hospitals and maternity wards. And all of this just went over people's heads. The one thing that made it obvious to the public that demonstrated the potential was when, starting in the very late teens, movie theaters, which during that time, Spent the summer months dead, completely dead, and would not, there was no such thing as a summer spectacular because they couldn't do it. In the late teens, there were some theaters in Chicago that decided to go ahead and air condition themselves. This was a very expensive undertaking and very elaborate, but the increase in business was so immediate and so huge that it rocked the industry, uh, both industries, uh, movie making and air conditioning alike. When the Rivoli in New York installed a carrier system in 1925, that cost $60,000, which was a monstrous amount of money at the time. They made it back all of it in three months because of the incredible increase in business. And also, this was something that really was important in more ways than that. For the first time in human history, the average person had a refuge from summer heat. There were people who suffered horribly. There are people who died from it. There are people who tried sleeping on their fire escapes or on on the roof of their building, and some of them rolled off into the alley, and that was the end of that. But for the price of a movie ticket, which was usually something like a dime, the average human being could go and cool down. And this had never, ever happened before. And this was anyone, not not merely the rich or any specific group, but anyone. And it was a revolution. Within 10 years, almost every movie theater, at least in America, had to have air conditioning or it was out of business. That began, to, that began to put forth the idea that you could do this in your own home as well. So that was the beginning of that revolution.
1: And of course, as people like Aunt Kate bought their air conditioners. Yes, she did. Um, Were they the kind that stuck out the window so you could literally see that your neighbor had gone that immoral route and was conditioning their houses?
2: Well, if it wasn't immoral, it was a status symbol. Because Uh seeing that metallic butt hanging out the window was uh, proof that you had the funds to do this. And in a way, it was quite quite the, uh, the status tag. Friends in suburbia told me that during the 50s, this was a real keep up with the Joneses thing. That uh, a Cadillac was flashy. An air conditioner, well, I'm taking care of the family's comfort. But
0: It's
2: interesting.
0: It's interesting that, is that there's a couple of things that sort of spring to mind. One is that sometimes a story needs to be rooted in proof that we need to know that the story is authentic and as it has a genuine so you know you're 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 seeing examples of it elsewhere so that you buy into the story but the other thing that really jumped out to me when you were talking about the failed attempts to market it through stories was that they had the wrong conflict point you know we talk about conflict is the is the heart of story right it's the driving force but if you don't get it right if you don't get that conflict point right and or the pain point as we would call it for marketers it's you're you're telling the wrong story and people will just you know make stuff up in their head anyway
2: fascinating absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. why uh, going back to my earlier comment why this all turned into fashion show with ladies in evening gowns to the extent that the evening gowns would be credited in in magazine ads for air conditioners. A lot of that was that air conditioners by the 50s were being sold to the little woman, the wife. Room air conditioners were sold to women. Central air conditioning systems were sold to husbands, wives' husbands. It was a complete split. And as you said, the idea of a focus group uh, am I correct that in the 1950s that was really almost unheard of?
1: Yeah, it was probably more door-to-door research at that yeah. point.
2: They had—they were feeling their way through this whole idea, and that is what they had come up with. By the 60s, it, it took that that whole decade to prove that they could simply sell it as comfort. And that comfort was all right by that time uh and it was not till the 1960s that it had lost a lot of its bugaboo the 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 moral standpoint or the idea that it was uh sissified somehow
0: fascinating so okay we've we've had about half an hour of, of conversation i just i'd just like to um ask you one sort of final question if i if i may just maybe a di- slightly different one what's thinking that this is a podcast about stories and and, and storytelling what's your favorite story um and why yes <laughs>
2: uh I, can, I don't have one favorite story that's that. uh you had uh, Susan had given me a heads up on this one, and I thought, that was <laughs> absolutely impossible. I'd say my favorite story is one that has not been concluded, because there's always room for another twist. Uh, I, I'm currently working on a third book. This one is a novel, and this one is a novel about performers uh, in New York the ones who don't particularly <laughs> make it. And as I write it, I realize that the, the important part is that the story does not end. There's, there's not really a conclusion to most stories. A story, if you're looking at fiction or any of the above, begins long before and it ends long after. Uh, They tell us about this in drama class that you have to fill in your backstory and your future story depending on the script that you're working on. And I've realized that that has a great deal to do with storytelling. You You have this in your consciousness and it validates what it is that you're saying at any given moment.
1: And of course you may be drawing on some personal experiences
2: here? Oh, no, I'm writing (laughs) completely (laughs) fiction.
0: For legal purposes.
1: There you go. Names have been changed to protect the innocent.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) Names have been changed to protect the innocent. You betcha. Well, look, um, Sal, we can't thank you enough for joining us for a story conversation today. Um... at the risk of a terrible pun we are very much looking forward to hearing the other cool things that you um accomplish in all your many interests and pursuits and uh thanks for telling your story
0: <laughs> I just I just love the, I love the fact that the story of air conditioning of all things is as interesting as that never mind the rest of the style stuff that just, just the, the the fact that something as mundane as an everyday object like air conditioning can be so yes fascinating.
1: well there have been a number of books that have been written like that cod salt um even latitude um yeah but but I think what's what, to me what's interesting is you know too too often in business we we basically think everybody knows what we're doing and and the, you know the the everyday thing the everyday service the everyday product does need a narrative we talk about this all the time between ourselves yeah and i guess that's um, the
0: that's the first thing isn't it really that the first thing you can take away is that stories can really come from anywhere I mean the most as we see the most seemingly mundane of things can provide a functional thing can provide a really interesting uh and can uh, interesting narrative and interesting story but it can be enhanced through storytelling techniques it can be brought to life I think Um, and you can really allow your customers to see how that object how that thing can affect their lives by putting them in the story that's
1: that's service yeah um (laughs) And maybe it's just us, but <laughs> we, we, we love the humor that Sal brings to something. Something is square, boxy, and cold as air conditioning. But I, I guess that's the takeaway: is don't underestimate humor or or or, or humanity or or. Um, you know, fun, <laughs> listen, yeah, fun. You know, if your if your message isn't fun or engaging, it it's likely that it's not going to resonate. So so don't be afraid of, of of humor.
0: And and the other thing that I think people should take away in terms of don't be afraid of is is a conflict point, And I will bang on about this until you know forever. Is that you know really rethink your conflict points? Are they Are they big enough? You know, a story sometimes needs to be proven. Um, So, you know, how the switch in marketing for Aircon, you know, change, for example, it changed its fate. So, you know, research the potential narratives of your customers to find the right pain points and that moment of conflict and, and really use that to bring a story to life and to hook them in and hook their listening brain in.
1: Right, and wow, one of the things that you know Sal talked about early on in our conversation that really resonated for me was the idea that you need to be prepared that not everybody is going to love your story, at least not initially. And I think the anecdote was, you know, his aunt gets the first air conditioner in the family. And the family is like, they're they're horrified. They 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 disapprove of it. They they talk trash about it. But everybody goes to her house on the hottest days of the summer for the gatherings. So I I think that the takeaway is if you're confident in your narrative in your story and you you know people challenge you, don't be afraid of that it's actually an opportunity to debate to defend to tell your story again and and really to differentiate yourself from your competition right and 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 you'll convert people and they'll come to your house for the party that's my takeaway
0: good good takeaway great well i hope everyone enjoyed uh, today's episode please join us again for the next episode where we'll have another equally fascinating speaker and set of
1: stories indeed